day. Um, like Daniel said, my name is Brad Holloway, and, and my family and I are getting ready to go and plant a church in Castle Rock, Colorado, just south of Denver. Um, and we're, we're excited about this. We're grateful for our time that we've spent here at North Wake. We've been here for almost 13 years. And we have learned so much about biblical community and love for God's word. And that's, that's part of the DNA that we really want to take to a place that's really starved of it. Um, so when you think about us, pray for us. Um, and again, a big part of, of that DNA is love for God's word. So we're going to continue our series in First Peter this morning. Um, so if you would, uh, just go ahead and turn there. We'll be looking at verses uh, 7 through 11 in chapter 4 of First Peter. As you turn there, I want to tell you this story. On July 4th, 1952, at 34 years old, Florence Chadwick attempted to become the first female to swim the Catalina uh, Channel. It's 21 miles from Catalina Island to Palos Verde, California. And the the weather was horrible that day. The ocean was ice cold and a dense fog uh, surrounded her. It was so dense that she could barely even see the support boats that flanked her. And after about 15 hours, she felt that she, she couldn't go on. And so she told her mom, and her mom, who was in one of the boats, and her coach encouraged her, said, no, you can do this. You're getting close. But after about another hour, she asked to be pulled out of the water. She had swam for 15 hours and 55 minutes. As she sat in the boat, she realized that she was less than a mile from her destination. But she couldn't see it because of the fog. She said, she told a reporter later that if she could have seen the shore, she knew she could have made it. Two months later, she tried again. The weather was the same, ocean was cold, dense fog made it hard to see very far in front of her. But this time, she succeeded in reaching her destination. And she did it in record time, 13 hours and 47 minutes. She said that she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind. And while she swam, that's what gave her the perseverance to make it. In our passage today, Peter is going to give his readers and us some instructions. And I think he would say to us, keep a mental image of the shore in mind. He's going to say, you're close. You can do it. Look at the shore and look who's there to welcome you. When you make it, all the pain, all the trials are all going to be totally worth it. Let's pray as we get ready to look at 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. God, you are so good to give us your word. You're so good to give us hope and peace. And God, many have come in here this morning and they've experienced suffering and they've experienced trials this morning. And God, I pray that you use this passage to speak to us. Give us hope in the midst of these things. 
You've got to open our hearts and our minds to, to hear and to receive your word. Amen. Last week, Larry preached on the passage just before this, verses 1 through 6. And it talked a lot about the Gentiles and how they lived. And said they lived in debauchery and drunkenness and all kinds of sexual sins. And Peter said that they were going to face judgment because of the way that they lived. Our passage today addresses how we as believers in Christ should live. And it's a pretty stark contrast, contrast from last week's passage. Peter says in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says the end is near. While there's a, a warning embedded in this, given what he spoke about in verses 1 through 6, I believe this is much more an encouragement for us to persevere. Over and over again, Peter says it's worth it. This living hope that we've, given, we've been given in Christ is worth it. See, some people may think that this is about the termination or destruction of the world, and, and, and it may be in a sense, but I think much more Peter is concerned about God's final goal. We are in the final stage of God's redemptive plan with Christ having been, been crucified and resurrected and, and now ascended and he sits at the Father's right hand. And Peter says, soon God will send Jesus back to gather his children, his children and to judge those who are not his children. If the message was true for them then, how much more true is it for us today that the end is near? But some, pay, some say Peter was wrong. They say the end was obviously not near, and it's not any nearer today than it was then. It's been 2,000 years since Peter wrote this, and still no end. Well, people were evidently saying that during Peter's day, too. So Peter wrote another letter, Second Peter. And in it, he says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the Lord will come, and he'll come like a thief. See, the end is near. Christ will return, and all of history will culminate in this end. The earth will pass away, and we're told that all things will be made new. And people will face judgment before God. We're told, we're told this just a couple of verses before. Some will be welcomed into the presence of God because of their faith in Jesus, and others will be damned to an eternity of suffering because of their rejection of Jesus. Again, there's a warning embedded in the encouragement. And because the end is near, Peter gives some instructions for how they're to live. 
Throughout this letter, Peter has grounded this instruction in the character and grace of God. He said in chapter 1 that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an inheritance that cannot be diminished in any way and that it's kept in heaven for us and that we ourselves are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation. Now he says, through this same faith, do these things because of the one in whom you have faith, because he is worth it. Back in the last chapter in verse 18, Christ, he says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive for this, in the spirit. He's saying because of this, Christ is worth living in the way that you are to live. And these are the instructions. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. These these are very similar things. Being self-controlled is acting rightly. This is the outward working of this grace in our lives. And being sober-minded is thinking rightly. This is the inward working of that grace in and on us to be able to think about the things above, as Colossians says. And Daniel mentioned this verse a while ago, 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be alert and sober-minded. See, the Gentiles were living a completely different life. And Peter was saying, do not live the kind of life they live. Do not live in a drunken stupor. Do not live in some delusional worldview where you have no regard for God. This is not the YOLO life that's described back there that Peter is is calling us to. And it shouldn't surprise us because in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's told us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ who suffered in the flesh. So we're called to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And living self-controlled and sober-minded lives is a recognition that life is going to involve some trials. Life is going to involve some hardships. And we should not seek the easy way out. We should not seek things that are going to numb the pain. It's not only that, but it's a recognition that life is about more than living in worldly passions. It's opposite of the way the Gentiles were living around them, and it's contrary to the way the world lives around us. Church, we're called to be different. Not giving in to all that the world tells us is important. Not striving for all that the world tells us to strive after. He's telling them to keep their wits and to not lose their minds and to not get distracted by the trials or the enticements that the world offers. And this end that he's talking about is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the shore that we should keep in mind as we walk through life. And he says, because your hope is set fully on the grace of God, you can carry out the instructions that follow. And he says, do this 
for the sake of your prayers. So we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of prayer. This involves being disciplined for prayer and being disciplined in prayer. We're to think clearly and we're to act rightly in prayer. It takes sober-mindedness to set aside time and guard that time to spend in prayer. Being sober-minded also allows us to trust God in prayer. As we remember the things that he's done and the things that he's written in his word and the promises that he's given us and that hope, we're able to trust him as we pray. He also says to live self-controlled lives. And this being self-controlled, it takes discipline to, to sit and to be still in prayer. It's a hard thing, especially for us in this day and time, to do. He's also saying that the way we live actually affects our prayers. If we're acting sinfully, our prayers will not, will not be heard by God. They'll be hindered. He says in chapter 3, verse 7, that men are to show honor, live in an understanding way with their wives, showing honor to them, so that our prayers may not be hindered. This is an intentional way of living. When we're not intentional to guard Christ and set our hope on him, our prayers will be hindered. God will choose not to hear our prayers. And our prayers will mainly be hindered because we won't even take the time to pray. See, prayer will keep us united with Christ. This is not a pull yourself up from your own bootstraps or, or put your head down and get her done theology. If this, is where the, if this were the case, he wouldn't even mention prayer. There would be no need for prayer. But he says we are to stay self-controlled and sober-minded and alert in prayer and for prayer. See, Peter is possibly remembering a time when, when Jesus asked him to pray. Just minutes before Jesus was betrayed by one of his friends and turned over to people who would beat him and mock him and, and put him on a false and corrupt trial and then, and then crucify him and bury him. Jesus asked him to pray, and Peter, instead of praying, fell asleep. He did not stay sober-minded and self-controlled. And then later, that same night, Peter would abandon Jesus and deny that he even knew him. But later, Jesus rose from the dead, and he went to Peter, and he restored him and forgave him and said, Peter, I want you to lead my church. I want you to lead my people. So Peter knew the grace of God and he knew the power of God. And Peter, instead of living in his failures, was able to live in the power that God supplied and was able to, to lead the church and to teach them and to encourage them and, and to write this for us to hear. So, so Peter's telling us also to live in the grace and the power of God in prayer. See, all the things that the world offers, 
looks in, they look enticing, but the clear-minded, the sober-minded and self-controlled Christ follower sees through this enticement and is able to pray, trusting that God will guard him or her through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says now that the end is very near. And he says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. He says, above all. There are many things that Peter could have, could have told them to do. Big things, grand things, you name it. But instead, Peter gives them a list of really kind of ordinary things. And he begins with, love one another earnestly. There's an urgency about this. And he's calling them to an active love. I think Peter knew that anything we do divorced from love is empty. We see this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. And Peter says, we love because love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hurt, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. In this proverb, we're told that Love covers all offenses. By loving, we put an end to the things that uh, cause strife and dissension among us. And we see this as Paul explains love in, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. He says here that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not uh, rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Do you see here how love covers a multitude of sins? Are we patient and kind with one another? Do we rejoice in the successes of others? Do we allow our successes to go unnoticed? Are we humble and gracious in our attitude with the church? Do we rejoice in the truth about others? See, when this is what marks us, we will not be easily offended by others, because we won't be insisting in our own way, but we'll insist in the benefit of others. We won't believe the worst about people and their motives. When we love earnestly, we seek the benefit of those around us. Another quick thing about love is, is our love should be visible. Earnest love is visible. And it will be a great witness to a watching world. Jesus says, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
So Jesus says, love just as I have loved you. And this should be visible because people will know. See, we're to love just as Christ loved us. Peter just said in verse 1 of this chapter, to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ did, which led him to suffer in our place. So our love is to be sacrificial. The problem with love covering a multitude of sins is, is our love can only do so much. There has only been one who has loved perfectly in this earnestness. And his love, his blood, is the only thing that can truly cover any sins. He is the only one that has truly loved earnestly by suffering for us in our place. And Peter is telling us to love like that. So how, how do we live out this deep love for one another? He says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So we're to be cheerfully hospitable. We're to spend time with one another and enjoy it. Sometimes it's easy to think, oh man, the Holloways are coming tonight for dinner. Don't get me wrong, I like them, but we've got to clean up the house before they come. And then we've, we're going to have to clean up the house after they come. <laughs> because their kids are going to come over and they've got a lot of kids and they're going to drag out toys. And you know they're going to stay late. <laughs> they always do. Peter's saying, don't think like this about hospitality. Rejoice in the fact that God has blessed you with the means to serve and to welcome people. See, cheerful hospitality is for the sake of the other person, to make them feel welcome in our home and in our presence. Cheerful hospitality doesn't see people like popping into our day as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity to show love. This could be anywhere from someone just wanting to talk and say hi to someone experiencing crisis. When somebody comes into your day like that, it ruins the rest of your day if you're showing hospitality with grumbling. But if you're showing hospitality without grumbling, you're going to see this as a great opportunity to serve and to love. When we're cheerfully hospitable, it also serves Christ. Jesus said, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we do any of these things? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. 
So hospitality is one of the ways we live out this earnest love to benefit others and also to serve Christ. And Peter goes on and says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Are you tracking with the theme here? He says, do this as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one speaks, who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. As each has been given a gift. This is stated as a fact, that we are given gifts. See, some think they don't have useful gifts, but you do have gifts, and God wants you to use them for the benefit of others, to serve the body. He says, steward well what God has given us. Pastor Eric Wolgamuth said thoughtfully, gifts given generously and graciously and joyfully are to be used generously, graciously, and joyfully and selflessly. And he uses this term, he says, that we're to be good stewards of God's varied grace. This means that that God has has given us unique gifts. He's not given us all the same gifts. He's given us a variety of gifts. Some are great at fixing things. Some are great at planning events or or strategizing. Some Some are very artistic. Some are great at cooking a meal for someone. We're to use each of the gifts God has given us to serve the body. And when we speak, notice he says, whoever speaks. I think Peter expects all of us to speak. Though some of us have been given a unique gift to speak, all of us have the responsibility to to speak. And he says, when you do speak, speak God's message. Speak the oracles of God, not man's message. And Peter practices what he preaches here. Peter cites or alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament except Revelation and Hebrews. Not only that, but he quotes or alludes to the teachings of Jesus probably more than any other book in the New Testament except for the Gospels. See, Peter was not interested in inventing a new message. And he wasn't just sort of familiar with the scriptures. He merely wanted to speak God's message. See, in a church like this, it's close to the seminary, we have a lot of people who've been to seminary and a lot of people who have not. Whether you have been to seminary or not, are you neglecting the gift of speaking that God has given you simply because you've not been to seminary? My good friend, Kyle Van Dusen, who's already gone to Colorado ahead of us, is a fantastic communicator. God has given him a gift, and if if he said, I can't speak because I've not been to seminary, then I know I, for one, would be missing out because of it. I'm sure there are many in this room who would say the same thing. Not only are we to speak, but we're to serve 
And when we serve, we're to serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. It's easy to get burned out serving. It's easy to sit at home when a workday is scheduled or to, to sit it out when, a se- when the seven-year-old class needs a teacher because, let's face it, kids are loud and they can be clingy. It's easy to sit at home or in the air conditioner when runner's camp is going on, although runner's camp runs by people serving, people serving as age group leaders, people serving food, people serving water. But you say it's hot out there and and only have so much vacation time. But Peter says, if this is the way you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it all wrong. If you're thinking about it this way, you're in it for yourself. Not only that, but you're doing it by yourself. We're We're not to serve for ourselves or by ourselves, but in the strength that God supplies, and he will supply it. And, this, and when this is the way we serve, God's going to be glorified. He says, in, to serve in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory and and dominion belong to Jesus forever. So when we serve, we're to serve so that he gets the glory because it already belongs to him anyway. This passage uh, wraps up a, a larger section that begins way back in 1 Peter 2, 11, and 12, which says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This verse, to to him belong glory and dominion, is the exclamation point on this whole section. Throughout this letter, Peter has had an an upward focus and an outward focus. Upward to God, all things for his glory and because of his grace and outward to the church and to the world. This is an easy way to live, right? No, it's not easy. This is why Peter tells us to pray. We're not meant to do it in our strength, on our own. We can only do this when we are fully united with Christ through faith. So church, let's keep that mental image of the shore in mind. Let's live self-controlled and sober-minded lives in prayer, remembering that the end is near. Loving one another like this in hospitality and using our gifts for the benefit of one another. Knowing that this type of life is worth it. When we live like this, the world will take notice. And some will ridicule and malign us. But I believe that others will be added to our numbers day by day, just as they were in the book of Acts. 
this is quite possibly the greatest evangelism tool we have, is our love for one another. Now, I'm not saying that we don't go and proclaim the good news to the lost, and Peter's not saying that. He has said over and over again to live in a certain way for the glory of God, always ready to give a reason for the hope you have in Christ. He says, be a great citizen for the glory of God. Be a great employee for the glory of God. Be a great neighbor for the glory of God. Be a great spouse for the glory of God so that when you speak about God and people look at the way you live, they will glorify God. But church, if we do these things apart from love, apart from love for God and apart from love for the church, there will be an emptiness to our gospel witness. This is the charge that Peter has for us today as a church. Let's pray.